Thanks. Thanks, Alan. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, yep, so um, we're going to talk about this passage this morning, amazing passage in Colossians 1. <clears throat> I've entitled it The Hipster and the Rat, and we're going to meet those two characters as we go along. Sounds like a trendy bar in Hoxton, um, but we'll see where that goes. Um, why don't we pray as we start? Our Father, we just we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you uh, for what Jesus has done for us. We worship you. We thank you for the words that we've sung this morning, for the prayers that we've prayed, and for the chance to gather together in his name. And we just pray that you would uh, speak to us now by your spirit as we open your word. And yeah, let us take away from this morning what it is that you want us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we get <clears throat> to these characters, there we go, the clicker works. I wonder who's still got any chocolate Easter eggs left? Let's see some hands. Whoa, okay, that's a lot of hands. <clears throat> I can tell you that I certainly do not. None at all, they've all gone. Do you know why we do Easter eggs? I can remember as a, as a young child painting eggs with patterns and faces at Easter. And <clears throat> it's one of my earliest memories, actually, but I'm not sure why we did it. I looked up Easter eggs on Wikipedia, and to be honest, I'm still not sure. It says there's evidence of humans painting on eggshells that goes back 60,000 years. And it was a common cultural practice, apparently, in ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia to place painted eggs in graves over 5,000 years ago. Um, so early Christians, the theory is, possibly adopted this local cultural tradition in the first century to represent uh, resurrection or the empty tomb or whatever, but it wasn't actually documented as being commonplace in Christian practice or culture until the 17th century. Now, I'm not knocking tradition, and I want to show you this picture of a Ukrainian painted Easter egg called a Pascal egg. Oh, it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? Which is apparently given and received at Easter with the words, Christ is risen, truly he is risen. And we go on praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine that they would know the presence of the risen Christ today. But my point is that as much as I love to eat an entire Montezuma chocolate Easter egg in a single sitting on Easter day, we don't exactly know why that's a thing that we do, or that, or that I do. I have no idea why I do that. And of course, it doesn't greatly matter. But what about the things which really should matter? As we look forwards from Easter, why do we do anything that we do as Christians? How do we know what it means to be a follower of Jesus? During Jesus' earthly life and ministry, you could spot his followers because they were literally following him around. But what does it mean for any of us to say that we are followers of a first century Jewish rabbi who claimed to be one with God himself, whose teaching flew in the face of the establishment to the point that they executed him? but whose followers claim to have seen him alive again three days later. How should that determine for us what really matters or influence our priorities individually and together? Well, actually, that question was equally relevant to the believers in the days and years after the risen Jesus had ascended to God the Father because after centuries of Jewish temple worship and sacrifices, Jesus has come and claimed to have made a new way to full and free forgiveness and eternal life for anyone who believes in him. The first Easter marked a seismic shift in the way in which God and humans relate. 
Well, the early church had the apostles, Jesus' closest followers, to help them make sense of the implications of all of that. And wonderfully, we've got their eyewitness statements and some of the letters which they wrote in the months and years after that first Easter, which obviously makes the New Testament an infinitely more important and reliable resource than, say, the Wikipedia page on the origins of the Easter egg. But I thought we'd have a look at this passage in the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in the town of Colossae, because it takes us from the cross of Christ and looks forwards. It's an ideal place to find out what it means to follow Jesus, both back then and now. It's worth having Colossians 1 open in front of you. Um, And for me, this passage is key, really, to understanding the whole message of this little book in the Bible. And we'll explore some of the big themes in Colossians as we go. Um, I'm going to split the talk just into two halves, two short halves. But in case you drift off at any point, uh, Colossians is about discipleship and mission. So that's our short passage. We're going to have a work through it and see what the, the Apostle Paul has to say And we're going to dive in to Colossians 1, starting at verse 24, and ask a really important question. What is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Verse 24, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So what's going on there? We've just had Easter last week, where we celebrated the victory of Jesus over sin and death, And as we look forwards from Easter, this just doesn't sound so good. Could Paul be a bit up himself, perhaps, trying to get in on Jesus' glory somehow? Or disturbingly, is there something really insufficient as far as what Jesus has suffered on the cross? Is Paul having to make up for something that Jesus has failed to do? Should I be worried that Christ's sufferings to take away my sins somehow haven't done enough? Well, to start to answer that really important question which this passage throws up, we've got to remind ourselves of why Christ came to suffer. In John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So what did God send Jesus to achieve? What was his commission, to borrow a term from our passage in verse 25? Jesus' commission then, Colossians 1 puts it this way, just, before, uh, in, just further on in our passage, verse 26 and 27, Jesus' commission, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus came to reveal the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there's a lot in there, and to help us think through that, I'm going to introduce us to the hipster. So in case you're not sure, I've got out of the library for you the Ladybird book of the hipster. Um, Just give you a couple of excerpts. This is a hipster. He is childless, unaccountably wealthy, and always well turned out. He likes art, porridge, scarves, and anything reclaimed from French factories, like this dog rack. Caf A in Brighton is a popular spot for hipsters, The owner guarantees that his customers will never have heard of anything on the menu. Things like Dotka, Commoner's Milk, Black Knock and Carnip Tartan, Keyhole Coffee, and these freshly oven-bolched beet corn labneys. Hipsters like art. This sculpture, called All the Dances I Have Ever Danced and In the Order I Danced Them, sold for over £11 million at a bespoke car boot art fair. It is made of sock. 
And so it goes on. And I think if you have to pick three absolute basic things that you need to be a quintessential hipster, then it's possibly a big beard, a toxic caffeine addiction, and making your own sourdough. Who had a go at making sourdough in the first lockdown? It was pretty popular. Yeah, there's a few hands. Okay, a few hipsters in. Good to see. So, <laughs> that was Tony's story over there. Yeah. Um, so, you've got this kind of festering pot or jam jar of yeast culture, which just kind of lives and grows in your fridge, and you feed it with sourdough or perhaps a mixture of New England IPA and beard conditioner or whatever you've got. And, it, and, and you get it out every time you want to bake, and you put a little bit in your bread mix with no other yeast, and it makes your bread dough really trendy. <laughs> makes your bread dough rise. To paraphrase Jesus' really short parable in Matthew 13, verse 33, when the kingdom of God is at work, it's like a bit of sourdough starter that a hipster took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And this is kind of what Paul describes in our passage as the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's kind of the same as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven at work. God's longing to enable sinful people like you and me to live in peace with him forever, which was planned from eternity past, has finally come about in human history when he sent Jesus. We can be sure that we will be in heaven, that's the hope of glory, because God doesn't live in a stone temple. Jesus actually lives in us. That's Christ in you. And God's kingdom, the new life that comes when you have Christ in you, is a pervasive, organic, living power which permeates every part of our lives. And Paul recognizes exactly this transformation in the Colossians. And he gets excited about it. Um, this is Colossians 1, right, sort of right at the beginning of the book there. Um, Paul recognizes three basic hallmarks in the Colossians. Not beards, coffee, and baking, but faith in Jesus, a new love for other Christians, which are underpinned by a certain hope in heaven when they die. And so this is like seeing the bread dough proving. And if you've, if you've ever done any kind of baking, sourdough or otherwise, you'll know the thrill that you get when you've got this kind of firm, dead lump of dough and you've put it in the airing cupboard or somewhere warm and you come back half an hour, an hour later and you've got this lovely, soft, supple, risen dough that's increased in size. And so this is like seeing the bread dough rising, the work of God's kingdom inside. And just to kind of emphasize that point in Colossians 1, this is immediately before our passage, verse 19, Colossians 1. Paul's clear that because of Jesus becoming a human and dying on the cross, it's possible to have these amazing things. Peace with God, to be reconciled, that means to be in a right relationship with God, to be made pure and clean on the inside, and to be free from guilt forever. And if you recognize that there's a rift between you and God, like it says there in verse 21, once you're alienated from God, enemies in your minds, if you recognize that rift between you and God in your own life, well, you can receive Jesus. You can ask him to come in and bring healing and forgiveness even today. And I'd love to chat to you about that after the service and pray with you if that's, if that's for you. So Jesus' commission and his suffering has achieved everything perfectly so that we can go from being his enemy to his family forever. And I think we've covered in our worship this morning all of those themes and more um, 
which is awesome. So, that being the case, why, in the next breath, does Paul say that he needs to suffer, to add something to that which Christ has already done? Well, we need to have a look at Paul's commission then, the commission that God has given him. In verse 25, he... In verse 25, um, he says he's been commissioned to be a servant of the body of Christ, which is the church, to present the word of God in its fullness. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 10, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one, the, the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? So straightforward logic, without sharing the message of the gospel, there's something vital missing. It's like a gift never given. And you can read the amazing turnaround story of Paul's commissioning in Acts chapter 9, where Jesus says of him, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And he certainly did suffer not as a punishment for his previous way of life, as someone who was persecuting Christians. And that's really, really important. Paul's sufferings were not to make up for his sin in any way. And that's true for us too. But because the hatred towards Jesus, which led to his crucifixion, had by no means gone away. So obeying Jesus' commission naturally led to suffering for Paul as he shared the message. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I've worked much harder, I've been in prison more frequently, I've been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. And after nearly 30 years of that lifestyle, Paul's writing this letter to the Colossians from prison in Rome in AD 60, just a few years before his own execution. So I think that's why Paul can say that there's still something left to be suffered for beyond that which Christ has already suffered, because... Paul has been sent by Jesus to preach in a hostile environment so that people can hear and believe and call on his name. And because of his obedience, here we are today listening to Paul's words, benefiting from his sufferings, which enable us to benefit from Christ's sufferings. But that's still not quite the whole answer because we've established that the Colossians are already Christians. So why does Paul write and say he is suffering for them? Well, we'll find out in part two. But for now, let's just take a moment to worship Jesus again together for what he has done for us. All right. So just wonderful to just take that chance to lift up Jesus and commit ourselves to him again. So, in part one then, we saw that Jesus' death on the cross has done everything necessary for us to have peace with God and for him to actually come in and live in us until we spend eternity with him. And we saw that Paul's job was to share this wonderful message, which brought with it suffering. But we've established that the Colossians are already Christians. And in fact, we think Paul probably never even visited Colossae in person. So why does Paul say that his sufferings are for them? Well, let's look back at our passage again, verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. 
You see, Paul's not content just to know that the dough has started rising. That was the kind of faith, hope, and love bit. He wants to nurture and encourage and protect what's begun until it's ready to bake. He is suffering for their maturity, for faith that is fruitful and that lasts the distance. And Paul prays for this earlier in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, verse 9, so that they can live lives which please God, verse 10, and so they can endure to the end, verse 11. And verses 9 and 11 also show us that this is not a work of their own efforts, but a work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ in you, this mystery which has been revealed. So Paul Paul prays that they would know God's will, which I always think sounds kind of cryptic, really, doesn't it? What does that mean? Well, thankfully, Paul explains that knowing Jesus is the way to know God's will. Back to our passage, verse 27 The glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Verse 28, he is the one we proclaim so that we may present everyone mature. And also in chapter 2, he says, My goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's pretty cool, isn't it? that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. So knowing God's will is actually all about getting to know Jesus. The thing about um, proper sourdough is once you've seen that initial rise of the dough, which proves that the yeast is working, the process of that same yeast starter that you've put in, working through the dough, actually changes the flavour of the bread. And it develops more and more the slower and longer you let it mature. Like we're talking like three days plus if you want to make a loaf of proper hipster bread, which is just ridiculous, obviously. But fun fact, the final flavor of the bread will be unique to this, the particular jar of sourdough starter which was used. And like sourdough bakeries sometimes, you know, their sourdough starters might be like 20 years old and it's the same starter that's being used and, and that's what creates their unique flavor. Faith starts wherever we're at. Jesus accepts us exactly as we are and comes to live in us by faith and we have a certain hope of heavenly glory. But the more we get to know Jesus, we begin to take on his character and kind of flavor, if you like, and our lives start to look a bit more like his. And in my case, it's a very, very slow process, but um, it's happening. You see... Paul says that once we've begun with Jesus, we never move on from Jesus, but we do move forwards with Jesus. Colossians 2 verse 6 puts it like this, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And it's been great to do lots of thankfulness this morning. We never move on from Jesus, but we do move forwards with Jesus. So as we read the Bible or listen to talks or podcasts or do discipleship groups, summer camps or whatever, we should be able to ask, how does this build the picture of who Jesus is, his character and his priorities for my life? It's relational truth. It's like getting to know a friend. It should draw us deeper into relationship with him and therefore change us to be more like him day by day in the power of his spirit. 
And if we had time, we'd see that that's the picture that Paul paints of living for Jesus in chapter 3 of Colossians. It's not a list of rules, but loving what Jesus loves and hating what he hates as his spirit, his kingdom, works through all the parts of our lives. And so that's Paul's aim. That's his commission to keep on putting Jesus at the center, nothing else. And it sounds really straightforward, but we've said that that's something that required Paul to suffer. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 again. My goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches, etc., to know the mystery of God, namely Christ. This is my um, sourdough starter. And um, I think it's dead. I got it out this morning. I've been, oh, there was a little bit of. I think it's actually dead. And the reason for that is because I forgot to feed it for two weeks while I was thinking about this talk. I haven't had time for baking. And, um, which is a bit ironic and a bit of a shame. Uh, just like yeast in dough needs certain conditions to thrive, Paul describes an atmosphere of encouragement and loving unity in church which enables maturity to develop. There's a moving forward together aspect to this, all pulling in the same direction in our shared love for Jesus, which binds us together. So when that's disrupted, there's actually a risk to everyone's spiritual growth. And so Paul wants to prevent that at all costs. And this is where we meet the rat. Okay, so a month or two ago, we were in the lounge one evening when we heard a noise, kind of scrabbling, gnawing noise. Maybe it was in the wall. Maybe it was in the floor. It was kind of hard to tell. And we basically ignored it, which was a mistake. We heard it again the next evening, and a couple more times after that, and then we didn't hear it again. And then a couple of weeks later, we were in the kitchen, and we smelled a smell, a kind of oozy smell. And we tried to ignore it, but it got worse. We tried to cover it up with other smells, but it didn't help. It started to affect our moods. We were, we were getting ratty with each other. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and eventually we realized we couldn't have guests in the house. And in fact, we no longer had any enjoyment living in our own home. It was pretty much a worst-case scenario. And of course, we knew all along what it was. And eventually... I had to get out the crowbar and the power tools and dismantle part of the kitchen to get under the floor. And I eventually found the culprit, um, whose condition can only really be described with the word runny. <laughs> and I can tell you, he wasn't running anywhere. And we put the place back together as best we could and invested in some measures to prevent another episode. Colossians chapter 2, if you read it, reveals that Paul is writing to avoid a worst-case scenario Misguided teachings actually crept into the church there, and Paul knows that just ignoring it could end up causing the church community to become joyless and ultimately uninhabitable as a family home. We don't have time to look in detail at the issues the Colossians were having, but so much emphasis was being placed on teaching from sources outside of the Old Testament and the Apostles' teaching that the focus on knowing Jesus was getting eclipsed, which led to discouragement and disunity. And so like yeast in the wrong conditions, you just can't grow. Um, so it's good for us to have awareness in, of anything in our church life which could end up taking our energy and our focus away from knowing Jesus and making him known. 
And even though lots of other things are really important in their own right, nothing is worth prioritizing if it's at the expense of the thing that is most important. Paul says that moving forwards with Jesus happens when we, most effectively when we do it together. So why is Paul filling up in his flesh that which is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the Colossians? Well, he's been commissioned to nurture and protect faith in a context of persecution and distractions so that they keep moving forwards together with Jesus. And that's called discipleship, and it's a pattern for us to copy. So the last verse in our key passage here, verse 29, to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul and Jesus are in partnership. It doesn't work without Paul's strenuous efforts, and it doesn't work without the power which Jesus provides. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And that's the story of God's grace in Paul's life. He doesn't use perfect people. He uses people who know what God's grace has done for them and who are empowered to live out an authentic story of the difference that that first Easter has made to them. And so I want to just briefly think about what it is that we are commissioned for as people who are day by day growing to be more like Jesus, fueled by his grace and the power of the Spirit. Well, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul addresses people like you and me in terms of what that partnership with Jesus might look like for us. And there's some really practical things that we can apply. So this is Colossians 4 verses 2 to 6. And verses 2 to 4 talk about being devoted to prayer and thankfulness I'm not going to read it all, but it's up there. So even if we're not called to this kind of pioneering gospel mission in uncharted territory like Paul was, there's an expectation here that we regularly spend time chatting to God, listening to him, worshipping him like we have this morning, praying uh, for all that he has blessed us with, but also specifically praying for mission and praying for places where there's persecution, that doors would open to let the message of hope in with clarity. And there's loads of resources we could point you to, like the Open Doors website. Why not have a look at our mission notice board at the back there um, while you're having coffee and see who you can be praying for. That's part of our commission. But maybe you have felt God stirring something in you, you know, a love that you just can't explain for a particular place or a group of people, maybe in the UK, maybe overseas. Well, I think it's worth sharing that with someone, praying about that that if it's something from the Lord, that a door might open for you in ministry. And verses 5 and 6 talk about gracious, salty conversations. Even if God is calling us to stay exactly where we are, there's an expectation that in our home and work and leisure, we're prepared for opportunities to share our experience of the gospel of grace in our conversations in a way that leaves people wanting more. And I think those are Jesus' key priorities for us. And in many ways, it's very, very simple, isn't it? But the reality is that as for Paul, even though we're empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit in our commission, 
it's going to be costly sometimes. It will be hard work, and we may face opposition. All the more reason, then, to make sure that our efforts are being put in the right place. You know, if we're ever suffering for sharing our faith, it should only be because of the message itself, not a lack of love and grace in the way that we share it. And in church, I think we've got to be prepared sometimes to give less priority to things which might draw our collective energy and focus away from knowing Jesus and making him known so that we've got that atmosphere of encouragement and unity where maturity can grow. We're commissioned to be an, uh, an encouraging and united family of believers who are ready to welcome anyone who the Lord leads us to. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. It's a trivial example, but we don't really know why we do Easter eggs, do we? And we're certainly not going to get too excited about it. That's the little Roger Hubert tribute joke there for you. But <laughs> the Bible is where we go to show us what matters most and what should be prioritized above all other concerns. And this is the message of Colossians in an eggshell, or a nutshell, that following Jesus' commission and Paul's commission for us means moving forwards together with Jesus to nurture faith which lasts the distance, so that more people come to know Jesus as they encounter lives that are being transformed by grace. Yeah, Lord Jesus, may that be true of each of us here and as a church family together. Amen. Amen.